Hi, I'm Eric Voss, and Game of Thrones Season 8 Episode 4 showed that when it comes to the secret of Jon Snow's lineage, gossip in Westeros spreads faster than it does in an office break room. I get it, coffee gets me gossiping too. This episode restored Game of Thrones to the backstabby political intrigue of the show's earlier seasons. I got a whole bunch of secret plan conspiracy theories brewing up here, and I'm gonna dig into them in another in-depth scene-by-scene analysis, breaking down the subtle details and hidden layers of meaning that you might have overlooked. Spoiler warning if you haven't seen the episode yet, and no noticeable updates to this week's opening credits. However, the image of Kyburn's scorpion ballista beneath the Red Keep takes on greater significance, obviously. It's aimed at the skull of Balerion the Dread, the dragon of Daenerys' ancestor, Aegon the Conqueror. The scorpion provided fairly effective artillery against Daenerys' dragons in Season 7, as it will once again this episode. The episode opens with the corpse of Ser Jorah Mormont laid on a funeral pyre. For Daenerys, this episode depicts loss after loss for her, as members of her family either die before her eyes or turn against her. The episode is titled The Last of the Starks, but it's actually about being the last of any family, whether it's Stark, Targaryen, or, evidenced by the deaths of Jorah and Lyanna, House Mormont. This funeral pyre reminds us of the one for Danny's late husband, Aquaman, the flames that gave her strength. This second pyre marks another shift in Daenerys' power, a descent into madness, as she realizes that any family members left to bury her and mourn her are disappearing. Danny whispers something in Jorah's ear, the closed captioning transcribes it as indistinct whispering, which is an odd couple of words for her to say to him. Seriously though, if you listen closely, you can make out the words miss you, I think. It seems like the show kept it a mystery to mirror the mystery of Jorah's final words to Daenerys in episode three. And if you listen closely throughout this funeral sequence, the music might sound familiar. Composer Ramin Jawadi is using his Night King theme from episode three, except instead of piano, Jawadi returns to strings, because piano is an instrument he uses only in rare occasions, like the near victory of a supernatural ice demon. The strings cover connotes the Night King's lingering scar tissue the human loss that these survivors must live with. On the corpse of Theon Greyjoy, Sansa tucks a Stark direwolf pin as a way of saluting Theon as a member of House Stark, recalling Jon for giving and renaming Theon as a Greyjoy and a Stark last season. You don't need to choose, you're a Greyjoy and you're a Stark. A wider shot reveals the scale of this death toll, a vast grid of pyres. Further behind this grid is a mound, wondering if this is the bones and limbs of the zombie whites of the army of the dead that showed up, left to rot. But these pyres are being burned as a northern tradition to burn their dead. Not necessarily out of White Walker superstition, but to honor them. And yeah, because no one's gonna dig graves for thousands of people in that rock-hard permafrost. John's direwolf ghost is revealed to have survived last episode. Though he is bloodied up and he's missing an ear. While Daenerys' Dothraki blood rider, Kono, didn't survive the cavalry charge either. Admit it, you hardly thought of him at all, did you? John gives this eulogy. It is our duty to keep them alive in memory for those who come after us and for those who come after them. He's calling back Bran and Sam's description of human memory. The Night King wanted to erase their history, killing all of them in an even deeper, permanent way. So by insisting on the memory of the fallen, John is immortalizing them. John also quotes the vows of the Night's Watch. There were the shields that guarded the realms of men. Dolores Ed's death marked the end of the Night's Watch, but all of these soldiers served as brothers of the Night's Watch. With the wall destroyed, Winterfell became their wall, the line upon which winter fell. Wait a minute. At the feast, Daenerys singles out Gendry as son of Robert Baratheon, her former enemy. But since all the Baratheons are dead, that leaves the Lord of Storm's End kind of a mystery. Who's Lord of Storm's End now? I don't know. Does anyone? 
Yeah, it's funny how none of us even know much about Storm's End either. It's actually a fascinating place known for powerful defensive walls with magical spells woven in, rumored to have been aided in its construction by the boy who would later grow up to be Bran the Builder. And it's one of the few major locations never to be shown on the series. By legitimizing Gendry, not only has Daenerys created a loyal ally, she's also created a potential threat to her claim to the Iron Throne. See, her claim depends on the argument that Robert taking the throne was illegitimate, that it technically technically legally belongs to the Targaryens. But now, if for some reason Daenerys, Cersei, and Jon cancel each other out, Robert Baratheon now has a legitimized heir with Gendry, who now has a direct claim to the Iron Throne after them. The reactions here are just perfect. Jaime looks apprehensive to learn that Cersei, with whom he conceived three fake Baratheon descendants, missed a major root in her deadly de-weeding of Robert's bastards. Ser Davos, despite his heroics during the Siege of Storm's End, making him kind of a natural successor to the Lord of Storm's End, Davos is the first to toast Gendry, possibly to avoid any implication of feeling snubbed. Because Davos is a cool guy, he doesn't like drama. And during all this, the Hound doesn't care, just keeps chowing down on his chicken. Davos and Tyrion discuss Melisandre and the role the Red God played in their survival. Lord of Light, we play his game for him, we win, and then he f***s off. Who knows what he wants? Davos reflects our crisis of faith. Like, why was Jon Snow resurrected just to have the Red God work in other mysterious ways? There may be more mythological answers coming, but Davos's feeling of abandonment casts these remaining hours in a state of despair. In Christian theology, hell is the absence of God. The way that in physics, cold doesn't really exist as its own concept. It's really just the absence of heat. So the departure of the Lord of Light in these characters' lives implies that they have been left behind in a hell of their own making. We have defeated them, but we still have us to contend with. Tyrion compliments Bran's wheelchair, recalling the saddle that he designed for him in season one. Bran responds that he's a tree and he's tired of birds nesting on him. Also that he got the design from an interesting historical figure. It's the same as the one Darren Targaryen built for his crippled nephew 120 years ago. <sighs> Cool. Bran is referring to Darren II, aka Darren the Good, who ruled about 120 years before the present day. Tyrion actually brought up Darren the Good when presenting Joffrey with his wedding gift. A book? The Lives of the Four Kings, Grandmaster Case History of the Reigns of Darren the Young Dragon, Bela the Blessed, Aegon the Unworthy, and Darren the Good, a book every king should read. This, of course, was a book that Joffrey hacked to shreds, but Bran would never mutilate a tree relative like that. Bran says he lives in the past, and maybe there's a deeper meaning to his knowledge of history here. Because Darren's cripple nephew probably would have been the son of Darren's sister named Daenerys, whom our Daenerys was named after. That Daenerys was forced into a marriage brokered by her nephew and fell in love with a relative. Which I know, that's a common thing in the Targaryen family. But given these parallels with our Danny, could this be foreshadowing that Danny could give birth to a cripple. Tyrion, Jamie, Brienne, and Podrick play a drinking game similar to Never Have I Ever, where if they say something true about you, you have to drink. Jamie says Brienne is an only child, something she claims she already told him, but he just says he surmised. A callback to their introduction back in season two. Do you have any brothers or sisters, my lady? It's a long way to King's Landing, we might as well get to know each other. Then Jamie says that Brienne danced with Renly Baratheon, and then she glares at Podrick before drinking. That's because in season five, Brienne told Podrick the story of how the boys at the ball teased her, but that Renly was kind to her. He danced with me and none of the other boys could say a word. Later, Brienne guesses that Tyrion was married before Sansa, and Jaime orders him to drink. Tyrion scowls at his brother. Because it's a nod to Tysha, Tyrion's first wife, who was actually a prostitute whom Jaime hired to pretend to love Tyrion. Tywin had the marriage annulled. He made Tyrion watch as all of his guards had sex with Tysha. It's a pretty dark story 
angry and Tyrion must be pretty wasted if he doesn't lunge at Jamie right now. But then Tyrion tells Brienne that she's a virgin and Podrick drinks. Now he could just be drinking out of embarrassment for Brienne. But some have interpreted this as Podrick admitting that he's a virgin, which would fly in the face of his legendary ways with women. Based on his singing a few episodes back, some are saying his mysterious moves might have just been to sing to these women. But later when Sansa sits with the Hound in the background, Podrick cozies up with the woman that the Hound just scared away and he heads off with two ladies. Nice. Sansa and the Hound recall his kindness toward her in King's Landing in season one, and the Hound refers to Ramsay Bolton torturing her. Sansa says, and he got what he deserved. I gave it to him. How? Hounds. <laughs> By recalling her feeding Ramsay to his own hounds, Sansa is in a way thanking the Hound for being one of her many inspirations. During this party, Daenerys overhears Tormund praising Jon. What kind of person climbs on a f dragon? A madman or a king? Notice that Tormund says what kind of person, not what kind of man. I don't think he means it, but the line hits home with Daenerys. Like Jon, she's a dragon rider, but not the king Tormund is describing, meaning that that must make her the madman. As Daenerys reflects on this, Varys comes into focus behind her, already sensing that Daenerys doesn't have the pull with these people that Jon does. Unlike Jon, she's isolated without brothers or sisters to drink with. Which is a shame, because many of you noticed she picked up a spare mocha latte and everything. Yes, someone on crew probably left a coffee cup on the table. My guess is that it was used to refill Tormund's slashing horn between takes, and that this was the only shot of Daenerys from the sad, pathetic, lonely angle. Also, explaining this just made me say the word slashing horn. So let's just move on. Whereas Daenerys wants a family, Arya refuses one, denying Gendry's proposal. But I'm not a lady. I never have been. That's not me. Arya's words are a callback to what she told her father Ned in season one. You will marry a high lord and rules castle, and your son shall be knights and princes and lords. No, that's not me. Arya is also calling back to her moment with Nymeria last season, when her dire wolf turned away from the chance to rejoin the Stark pack. That's not you. All of this signaling that Arya's time with her Stark pack at Winterfell might be done, and she's ready to go back on her own individual journey. Jamie uh, anoints Brienne the second time? And this hot, hot sex scene begins with a close-up of Brienne's sword, Oathkeeper. The sword that Jamie gave her to reflect the mutual respect they built for each other. They take off each other's clothes, reflecting the last time they saw each other in the buff, back in the baths in season three, the first moment that Jamie Lannister showed his true vulnerability. Later, everyone reviews their map table, revealing the battle's exact death toll. Half are gone, the Northmen as well. And looking closely, the Dothraki slides half of his pieces off the map as well, suggesting that despite what we saw on the horizon, not all the Dothraki died. Apparently thousands of Dothraki joined Jorah in that retreat from the dumbest Leroy Jenkins charge ever. Which is surprising. Daenerys winces when Varys places the Iron Fleet and Golden Company pieces down at King's Landing. She's feeling the painful afterburn of her decision to help Jon up north. If only she just stayed south, she wouldn't be so outnumbered. But then Daenerys uses some real interesting words. But before I get to that, this video was sponsored by ExpressVPN. A VPN allows you to browse the internet with privacy without things like ad companies, hackers, spyware, any of those things tracking your data or secretly filtering your internet experience. ExpressVPN masks your IP address to make sure that you aren't being monitored so that you can have that peace of mind. You can just live life knowing no one's peeping at you. Personally, I use ExpressVPN because when I'm like researching for these breakdowns, I don't want people monitoring me when I Google, is it better to bury a body or to burn it? It's for work. Well, 
for my night job, but that's none of your business. ExpressVPN is the fastest VPN on the market and the number one VPN service rated by TechRadar. And say if you're in a different country, you might not be able to access everything on Netflix or YouTube or other streaming services. Thanks to ExpressVPN, you can avoid those weird restrictions. You can just watch everything you want to watch normally, the way the internet should be wherever you are. ExpressVPN lets you securely stream or download content from anywhere, anytime. It's less than $7 a month with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Take back your internet privacy today and find out how you can get three months free by clicking on the link in the description box. ExpressVPN.com slash New Rockstars. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash New Rockstars for three months free with a one-year package. Visit ExpressVPN.com slash New Rockstars to learn more. Take back your internet privacy today. Okay, back to Daenerys. She says we will rip her out, root and stem. Root and stem is an interesting recurring phrase throughout Game of Thrones. Arya spoke it as Walder Frey, taunting the phrase as she killed them all that they shouldn't have left one wolf alive at the Red Wedding. You should have ripped them all out, root and stem. I'm the best character actor ever, and I missed on that show. And when Daenerys says it here, notice that Varys winces too, because he also said it in reference to the way that sorcerer castrated him when he was a boy. With a hooked blade, he sliced me, root and stem. So root and stem refers to this idea of eradicating someone's legacy, their literal ability to procreate and make descendants, but also their memory living on and taking root in future generations. It's a pretty bombastic comment for Daenerys to say, because erasing the history of the enemy was exactly the goal of the Night King. Jon just spoke out against this kind of historical revisionism in his eulogy. And as I mentioned before with Gendry, this episode also reminded us of Cersei's root and stem campaign to kill all of Robert's bastards. How that failed with Gendry's survival and now ascent to lordship and a threat to her Iron Throne. So for Daenerys, saying this is another example of her descent into Cersei-style villainy and madness in this episode. Varys confirms that Yara Greyjoy is reclaimed the Iron Islands, and that there's a new Prince of Dorne. And the last time we saw Dorne, the Sand Snakes murdered Prince Dorne Martell, along with his heir, Tristane. But in the books, Dorne actually had another son, Quentin Martell, who squired with the Dornish Lord Euronwood, and he became a knight. We'll see if he comes up on the show or if this was just brought up. Their plan is to split their forces. A larger land force down the King's Road, and then a smaller navy and the dragons from White Harbor sailing down to King's Landing. The idea is to blockade the city from land and from sea, gradually starving it in a siege. It's similar to the Siege of Yorktown that ended the American War of Independence, which featured the combined Continental Army and French forces blocking the British by land and the French fleet blocking Chesapeake Bay by sea as they bombarded the British forces and starved them of resources. But there's actually a much bloodier, much more drawn out and less victorious siege that they might be pulling from for King's Landing here. I'll bring it up later. In the Godswood, Arya states the title of the episode, We're family, the four of us, the last of us, the last of the Starks. These words put Jon on his heels because he's actually among the last of two houses, Stark and Targaryen. And he's probably thinking that Daenerys needs his kinship more than these Starks do. Earlier, Daenerys begged him not to tell his sisters that he's actually Aegon Targaryen. And now Bran tells him, it's your choice. As in whether you want to tell them, Jon, or have them hear it from a wooden pole that was lucky not to be accidentally used for funeral pyre fodder. So by having Branch tell his sisters, Jon, in a way, stays true to Daenerys. I mean, no one can really control what this Bran says. Bronn surprises Jaime and Tyrion showing up with the Lannister crossbow given to him by Kyburn with Cersei's orders to assassinate them, the crossbow that Tyrion used to kill Tywin. Tyrion tries to calm this sellsword. Power resides where men believe it resides. Shut your mouth. 
Tyrion is calling back Varys' famous riddle in season two about the sellsword in the middle of a king, a priest, and a rich man, uh, each trying to get the sellsword to kill the other two. The answer to the riddle is that power isn't based on anything real, it's just a projection. Power resides where men believe it resides. It's a trick, a shadow on the wall. Tyrion tries to cast a similar tricky shadow here, promising Bronn Highgarden, twice as valuable as Riverrun, with Bronn recalling Tyrion's offered him back in season one. If the day ever comes when you're tempted to sell me out, remember this, whatever that price, I'll beat it. I like living. But Jamie says, Highgarden will never belong to a cutthroat. Bronn responds, No, who are your ancestors? The ones who made your family rich. Fancy lads in silk? Bronn is reminding us of the ancient figure Lan the Clever, founder of House Lannister, who famously tricked the Casterlies out of their valuable gold mines and castle. So Bronn is saying that tricks and treachery are as good of ways as any to establish a house and a dynasty. Arya catches up with a hound on their way out of Winterfell, asking, Are you headed to King's Landing? I got some unfinished business. Ah, I hear those air horns. Yeah, that unfinished business sounds a lot like Clegane Bowl to me. Remember, earlier the Hound mentioned this business to Sansa as well. There's only one thing that'll make me happy. What's that? That's my f***ing business. The last time the Hound mentioned any active plans down south, it was at the end of last season to his brother Gregor Clegane. That's not how it ends for you, brother. You know what's coming for you. Yeah, brother! You know what's coming for you, brother! There's a quick shot of Daenerys with Rhaegal, with the camera pointed through the holes of Rhaegal's wings, ugh, reminding us that Rhaegal was seriously wounded by undead Viserion in the Battle of Winterfell, and now he doesn't have the best mid-air control. Daenerys gets a glimpse of that as Rhaegal wobbles a bit upon takeoff, of course foreshadowing his later death, because he's probably not good at dodging anything in the air. Sansa gosses the truth about Jon to Tyrion, and this was no accident. She's a former student of Littlefinger, someone who taught her to fight every battle, every in her mind. And she knows how this information is going to cause tension within Daenerys' ranks. And Sansa hopes that that chaos will be a ladder for Jon. Jon bids farewell to Tormund and his direwolf ghost. They'll both return north with the Free Folk. Tormund tells Jon that he belongs up north too, echoing Sansa's warning about Stark men going south to King's Landing. But by giving away ghosts, Jon is symbolically giving up his Stark identity so that he can better embrace his Targaryen identity. Jon leaves Sam and Gilly as well, learning Gilly is pregnant. Jon says that he hopes it's a girl. It could be a deeper nod to Gilly's history, keeping her baby, son, young Sam, away from the White Walkers since Craster promised his male babies as tribute. Now, I don't expect the Night King or the White Walkers to return, but assuming we haven't seen the last of Tormund or Ghost, a lingering supernatural threat, like maybe the reincarnated Night King, could be a terrifying thing for them to face at Castle Black. Moving on to the Targaryen fleet returning to Dragonstone, but surprised by Euron Greyjoy and the Iron Fleet, each ship armed with one of Kyburn's scorpion ballistas. Rhaegal is another devastating loss for the Mother of Dragons. It's a loss of Jon's dragon, named after Jon's father, Rhaegar, and the loss further distances Danny from Jon, with Jon being the more kingly of the dragon riders, and Daenerys being the madman of the dragon riders. This episode uses the same crosshairs point of view framing that we saw from Bronn during last season's battle, but now the scorpion is far more accurate and mass-produced. You may also notice that Euron customized it to have this suction cup texture with its arms curled inward, invoking his sigil of the Kraken. 
These ballistas decimate Daenerys' fleet. The boat explodes around Tyrion. He gets knocked out by a falling mast, echoing Tyrion getting knocked out and missing the Battle of the Green Fork in Season 1. In King's Landing, Cersei prepares for Daenerys' siege by bringing the people of King's Landing into the walls of the Red Keep. Now, of course, Cersei isn't doing this to protect them. She's using them as human shields to prevent Danny and Drogon from torching the castle. Using defenseless civilians as human shields is a move real-world dictators have pulled when under siege. Like in Libya, Muammar Gaddafi's men were accused of doing this. This siege sounds like it's going to end very badly for the people of King's Landing since Cersei seems so willing to let them all die. I mentioned Yorktown before, but, but this siege might look a lot more like Leningrad in World War II, with Nazi Germany surrounding the Soviet city, Leningrad, modern-day St. Petersburg, starving its people for over four months. There are reports of cannibalism. It was one of the most drawn-out and deadliest sieges in human history. It was actually believed that Stalin allowed this destruction on his own people just because he hated the Leningrad city leaders. So he was happy to sacrifice his own people just to wear down the invaders. Cersei Lannister might end up being a similar Stalin figure, who could come out victorious, but at what cost? Because she's just sacrificing her own people over and over again. But Cersei, like Stalin, actually hates these people. All she wants is just to bitterly cling to power and prevent the other people from winning, a zero-sum game. Notice here that Cersei now wears Lannister red, making her a parallel to figure to Daenerys, who's also wearing red this episode. Two mad queens who have had children ripped away from them. As the reigns of Castamere music plays, Cersei passes her captive, Missande, saying, So much for the breaker of chains. It's tragic that Missande dies in chains, just like she began the series as a slave of Astapor. But she does leave us with a powerful message of freedom that I'll get to in a bit. Back on Dragonstone, Daenerys plans to attack King's Landing. Varys looks her in the eye to warn her that this is a mistake, calling back his promise last season. You'll look me in the eyes as you have today and you'll tell me how I'm failing them. I swear it, my queen. And remember, that scene ended with Daenerys promising Varys this. And I swear this, if you ever betray me, I'll burn you alive. So it's interesting that Varys recalls this exchange and then goes on to conspire behind Daenerys' back in an echoey throne room. But perhaps this is Varys' plan. He does tell Tyrion, I will act in that interest no matter the personal cost. Each of us has a choice to make. Remember last season, Melisandre told Varys that he would die in Westeros. And now he's cryptically talking about choices, repeating Bran's choice words to Jon earlier. When Varys was cut root and stem by that sorcerer, he heard a voice in the fire. Perhaps Varys sees himself on a spiritual quest, a vessel of the Lord of Light, willing to sacrifice himself by fire as a martyr to further underline Daenerys' descent into madness, turn her people against her, and then protect the realm from this madness. Varys might also be orchestrating another assassination plot, like the hit he put on Daenerys in the past, using his network of little birds, which still do exist in King's Landing. Kyburn is now operating a gang of newsies. But these kids might be willing to turn on Kyburn the way they turned on Pycelle. It's also possible that Varys could be coordinating with Sansa, who did in this episode describe herself as a little bird. I would have stayed a little bird all my life. Jaime Lannister appears hell-bent on a similar mission. He leaves Brienne, reminding her that he pushed Bran out the window, he strangled his cousin Alton Lannister, and he was prepared to kill the Tullys of Riverrun in season 6. Notice how he is confessing his dark secrets, just like Brienne was forced to confess in the drinking game earlier. But it's all to paint himself as a villain to make it easier for her to let him go to Cersei. She's hateful and so am I. On one hand, part of Jaime is inextricably devoted to his hateful twin sister, forcing him to see himself as hateful. His words here actually call back that line in season four. You're a hateful woman. Why do the gods make me love a hateful woman? 
But on the other stump, maybe the ultimate act of villainy he's hinting at is killing Cersei. Since he just learned about Cersei's win over Danny, and he knows his hateful sister better than anyone, and he worries that these two mad queens will burn the realm to ashes. This could bring Jaime full circle as a Kingslayer, now the Queenslayer, and fulfill that Valenquar prophecy from the books about Cersei dying at the hands of her younger brother. We actually went more into this question in Westeros Weekly. Go check out that episode. That brings us to the final sequence at the walls of King's Landing, which Kai has mounted with dozens of additional scorpions. The gate opens and Kyburn appears, evoking that scene from Lord of the Rings Return of the King, the extended footage with the mouth of Sauron at the Black Gate. My master Sauron the Great bids thee welcome. Just as the mouth of Sauron taunted those heroes with Frodo's knee thrill, the mouth of Cersei taunts these heroes with their captive, Masande. The two hands try to bargain. I don't want to hear the screams of children burning alive. No, it is not a pleasant sound. Kyburn is hinting that he has already heard the sound of children screaming as they burned alive. Because he heard this when he helped Cersei blow up the Sept of Baelor with wildfire. Remember, Cersei smiled at the screams of burning people, which if you listen closely, probably included a few children. Tyrion sidesteps Kyburn, breaking ankles, and addresses Cersei directly, bringing up her unborn child. It doesn't mean your baby has to die. Earlier, this episode made a big point of Cersei telling Euron that her baby was his. Now, Tyrion hasn't seen Cersei since before she and Euron slept together, which, if Euron is paying attention, should alert him that the baby couldn't be his. Perhaps this is a clever tactic by Tyrion to try to destabilize Mad Queen Cersei's authority with some gossip about royal lineages. The same way Sansa used royal lineage gossip to destabilize Mad Queen Daenerys' authority. But Cersei responds by having the mountain behead Masande. In doing so, she actually echoes the brash decision of her son, Joffrey, who cast aside good judgment in favor of a demonstration of power to execute Ned Stark. Cersei protested Joffrey's order, but now she embraces her late son's madness. Masande's final word is Dracaris, the High Valyrian word for dragonfire. It's the word Daenerys uses to order Drogon to burn stuff, and the exact word that Danny used to set Masande free in Astapor. So by saying this here, Masande's returning to her moment of freedom as she is freed from this world. But Masande's also leaving Daenerys with a really dark message. Because of course, Daenerys uses Dracaris the same way that her father, the Mad King Aerys II, would scream, burn them all in his dying breaths when he ordered his maesters to burn down King's Landing with wildfire. Dracaris and burn them all essentially mean the same thing. Like her father, Daenerys has found herself at the end of her rope, losing family members by the hour from death or betrayal. And the only thing that makes sense to her now is to burn it all. In season two, Daenerys' vision showed her walking among the ruins of the Red Keep. But perhaps what we thought was snow was actually ash. And this charred heap of King's Landing might be all that this Mad Queen ever rules over. Comment down below with your thoughts. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at EA Voss and subscribe to New Rockstars on Twitter. And also follow our new podcast feed, Westeros Weekly, for early access to all of our Game of Thrones coverage. Thank you for joining me and forget reading Danny's lips for whatever she told Jorah. I want to know what Podrick told those ladies to set up that uh, menage pod. <laughs>